So Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said, Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? 
Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen. Let me pray before we think about that together for a few minutes. Our God and Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God. And we thank you that you've spoken to us clearly through the scriptures. And so we ask now that as we study this portion of the Bible together, you would help us all to listen and so to love you more. We ask it all for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, let me begin by asking you a question. Why should Christians prioritize telling people about Jesus? Why should Christians prioritize telling people about Jesus? That is one of our big priorities here as a church family, telling people about Jesus. And if you've been around over the past term, then you'll hopefully have picked that up. We spent the term thinking about 1 Corinthians together. And one of the big applications of that has been to set aside our preferences, to set aside our rights as Christians, in order that we might tell people about Jesus. But it's worth, we've reached half term, So I think it's worth taking a step back and asking ourselves whether that is a worthwhile thing for us to prioritize. Are words really the best thing we've got? I remember explaining to someone a few years ago that I spent a lot of my time teaching the Bible and telling people about Jesus. And in response, he said this, people are fed up of words. The church needs to move on from that kind of thing. Because words don't make a difference to anyone. People want action. Now, apart from the delicious irony of him using words to try and persuade me of his point, I wonder what you think of that idea. Perhaps you're absolutely on board with it. Words don't really accomplish anything. We've prayed this morning for Brexit. How far have words got us so far? And so by Chalmers being committed to telling other people the good news of Jesus, words about Jesus, well, you might think that we're actually signing our own death warrant as a church. Or perhaps you think you probably should disagree with that idea. Maybe you're a Christian and you know that it's important to tell people about Jesus. But from your own experience at least part of it resonates with you. Most folk don't want to know about Jesus, do they? Maybe some folks you've spoken to have shown an interest, (coughs) but after a while it often peters out, doesn't it? Maybe you haven't actually got that far yet. You haven't been open with your friends or your colleagues about Jesus, the fact that you're a Christian yet, but even the thought of talking about Jesus in your office or the staff room Well, it feels so weak. It's embarrassing. Words look inefficient. They look slow. They look weak. 
Surely we can think of something better to prioritize than telling people about Jesus, can't we? Well, this morning we're spending our time looking at Mark 4, and as we do that, we might be in for a little bit of a surprise, because Jesus actually agrees with that critique in Mark chapter 4. I wonder if you noticed that. He uses three different parables, three extended illustrations, (coughs) and what we see in each of them is that speaking the good news about Jesus is firstly inefficient, verses 1 to 20. Secondly, it looks slow, verses 26 to 29. And thirdly, it looks weak, verses 30 to 32. Now, isn't that a bit of a surprise? It's a surprise even in the context of Mark's gospel. In chapter one of Mark, Jesus bursts onto the scene, not firstly as a healer, not firstly as a miracle worker, but as a preacher. We'll see that again in a minute or two. And in chapter three, he sends out 12 of his closest followers. And what does he send them to go and do? To preach, to tell people about him. Words were Jesus' way of doing things. So why on earth is he having a go at words? It's like the turkeys voting for Christmas, isn't it? What's he doing? Well, Jesus does say that telling people about him looks inefficient and looks slow and looks weak. But, says Jesus, that's no reason to pack it in. Because he agrees with that critique but he disagrees with the conclusion drawn from that critique. Because weakness and apparent inefficiency, well, that's exactly what it's meant to look like, says Jesus. More than that, he says that even in that apparent weakness, God's words are how God grows God's kingdom. Let me say that again. Even in apparent weakness... God's words are how God grows God's kingdom. And as we'll see this morning, grows it abundantly. That's where we're heading this morning. But before we get there, it is worth spending a few minutes getting our heads around Jesus' critique of word ministry. On the back of your service sheet, it's worth saying at the beginning, there's an outline on the back of your service sheet that will give you a bit of a clue as to where we're heading this morning. You might find that helpful to have in front of you. And you'll see there, the first point on the service sheet is that God's word grows his kingdom uneconomically. That's verses 1 to 20. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, by this point in Mark's account, Jesus has already established his credentials as a preacher. And in fact, if you just turn back over the page, it's worth doing that um, at the outset. If you just turn back over the page in Mark's gospel to chapter one and have a look at how Mark introduces Jesus' ministry. In chapter one, verse 14, this is the, the, the first public work that Jesus does. Verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is a preacher. He's a speaker. That's how he comes. And the message or the word that he's speaking is one of repentance and belief. Repentance sounds like an old-fashioned word. It means turning away from, changing your mind from an old way of thinking and behaving. 
And by belief, he's talking belief in the good news of a God who forgives sins, who doesn't treat people as they deserve, but is gracious and kind. That's fleshed out through chapter 2. Now turn back over to Mark 4, if you would. Because in Mark 4, Jesus explains that speaking that same word, the word of repentance and belief, will have different results. So from verses 3 to 9, he uses an illustration, a parable about a sower sowing seed, which he explains from verses 13 to 20. He tells us that that seed, verse 14, is the word. And in verse 15, when that word, the good news of Jesus, is explained to some people, well, it lands on rocky ground, like a path, and it's quickly snatched away. Verses 16 and 17, others hear that message and initially it looks like they're accepting it. But because there's no real root, when they encounter some kind of opposition, some kind of negative reaction to the message, they fall away. Verses 18 and 19, there are people who are interested, who respond positively to the message of Jesus, but over, that, over time, that response is just drowned out by distractions, by the things of life. Earning more money and owning more stuff seems to be more important than sticking with Jesus. He uses a really interesting phrase, doesn't he? The deceitfulness of riches. They lie to you, they lull you in, and they distract you from the word. And so that word is choked. It isn't fruitful in their lives. And it's only when we get to verse 20 that some people hear the message and it takes root and bears fruit. So we have it, three unfruitful reactions for one fruitful reaction. And that's a pretty poor return, isn't it? It's pretty inefficient. So to be honest, it's probably a bit wasteful of that seed. But what Jesus is describing may well be familiar to you if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Maybe you've tried telling people about Jesus. And to be honest, they just don't seem that interested at all. Not necessarily because they're hostile to you, not necessarily because they're hostile to the message. They just aren't that fussed. And it feels like what you've told them has gone in one ear and gone straight out the other. Well, Jesus says, Mark 4.15, that could well be the devil himself at work. The personal actor of evil in the world plucking the words away before they can take root. Or maybe you've told someone about Jesus and, and they looked keen to begin with, perhaps interested, but things petered out over time. Maybe because they started to realise that becoming a Christian would come with a cost. It would bring opposition, difficulty. Or maybe they just preferred to spend their life pursuing other things. Their job or their pension fund is just more important to them than listening to Jesus and following him. See, telling people the good news of Jesus looks ineffective. It looks wasteful. But all of that sounds a bit pessimistic, doesn't it? It's true to our experience, perhaps, but it's a bit pessimistic. Until we read on through Mark chapter 4, as the picture doesn't actually look all that much more upbeat. Just look on down to verse 26. This is the second parable in Mark 4. And again, the picture Jesus uses is of sowing seed. 
And the seed does sprout this time, which is a bit more positive, I guess. But notice that in verse 27, the process isn't immediate. Look at the words he uses. The sower sleeps and rises night and day. It's poetic language, but the point being made is that it takes time. And even when it does happen, verse 27, the seed sprouts and grows, but he knows not how. The sower really doesn't have all that much to do with the seed growing. He can't really explain it, doesn't really understand it. And again, that's true to life, isn't it? Often you'll have absolutely no idea whether telling someone about Jesus has made the slightest bit of difference. When I was at university, I was involved in running an eight-week course called Christianity Explored each term, where we looked at the claims about Jesus from one of the gospel accounts. And uh, there were a few folk who repeated that same course all the way through two or three times. And I can remember getting through to the second or the third time of finishing and having absolutely no idea whether any of what they'd heard was resonating with them at all or whether they were coming because there was a free dinner at the end of the night. I wonder if you've experienced something similar. Telling people about Jesus looks slow. It's unpredictable. And then on to the last parable from verse 30. Again, another seed, this time verse 31. It's a mustard seed. Now, you might never have seen a mustard seed before. They're absolutely tiny, smaller than the head of a pin. They're so small that for all you know, I could tell you that I was holding one up in front of you right now and you wouldn't know the difference. Genuinely hard to see. I'm not for what it's worth, but I could be. Now, why does Jesus tell us about the mustard seed? Well, he's on the same topic of word ministry, of speaking. It's that same seed picture through all of the parables. And this time, the point that he's making is that just like the mustard seed, the message about Jesus looks tiny. It's unimpressive. It's weak. Now, most of us don't have any real issues trying to persuade a colleague or a friend that something is great and it's worth looking into for themselves. The reason I say that is because we do it all the time. So we'll happily blether on about how great the film was that we saw last night, about our favorite band, about our favorite restaurant. But when it comes to telling somebody about how great Jesus is, the most important person in our lives, around whom everything else is shaped, it feels utterly terrifying, doesn't it? Why is that? Well, it might be that it feels more personal to share that kind of thing, that we feel more vulnerable talking about our faith than talking about a film. But it might just be because the message itself feels really weak and small and foolish. See, in Mark 4, Jesus uses three illustrations to make a similar point. Telling people about Jesus looks uneconomical, it looks uncontrollable, and it looks unimpressive. Now, how's that for a pep talk halfway through the motto series, Chalmers Church? It's not going to win any awards as a motivational speech, is it? But it is worth asking, why does Jesus paint such a bleak picture of word ministry? Well, it's a little bit like my approach towards cooking, I think. 
Uh, let me explain. Um, I'm a pretty useless cook, so please do take note. If you're ever invited round to our house for dinner, you're absolutely within your rights to ask who's cooking before you accept the invitation or not. Uh, and sometimes even following a recipe isn't enough to keep me on the straight and narrow. Uh, so as a student, I once invited some friends round for dinner, uh, and I made them what was meant to be a Thai green curry, and emphasis there is on meant to be. Uh, the recipe told me to add a certain volume of water to the pot, and uh, so I did that very dutifully. Um, but to my completely untrained eye, it started to look a little bit dry. So I thought I'd exercise again a non-existent culinary expertise and add some more water, <coughs> which it quickly became apparent was a very bad idea. And uh, it turns out that it's easier to add water than to take it away, uh, who knew? And so we ended up having chicken soup instead. Um, and the point is, what I really need when I'm cooking is a picture of what it's meant to look like. Why? Well, because it helps me not to panic. It helps me not to change the recipe when things start to look like they're falling apart. And I think Jesus is doing something similar in Mark 4. So how do we naturally respond when we get knockbacks from people when we tell them about Jesus? What do we do when progress is really slow? Or when the message that we're bringing to people feels weak and unimpressive. Well, we may well try the spiritual equivalent of adding more water to the pot. We'll just change the message a little bit. Or we'll just stop speaking quite so much. Do you think it's a coincidence that as church attendance in the West has been in decline over the past 20 or 30 or 40 years, that lots and lots of churches have started tinkering with the message? Think that's a coincidence? Or do you think it's a result of a seeming decline? Jesus explicitly says that telling people about him will look uneconomical, it will look unpredictable, and it will look unimpressive. And he wants us to know that that's exactly what it's meant to look like. Why? Well, so we don't go tinkering with the recipe. Don't stop telling people about me just because people reject it. Don't change the message about me of repentance and belief just because it feels weak. So we return to our opening question. Why prioritize telling people about Jesus when it looks uneconomical, uncontrollable, and unimpressive? Well, says Jesus, because that's exactly what it's meant to look like. But there is a second reason that we're to prioritize telling people about Jesus, even when the results seem to be discouraging. See, for anyone involved in farming, or even involved in gardening for that matter, wastage and slowness and unimpressiveness that Jesus describes, well, they aren't actually all that surprising. It's just how things work when you try and grow stuff, slowly and inefficiently. But I wonder if you noticed that I've skipped over a little bit of each of the parables. So just look down to verse 20 with me. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. There will be a harvest, says Jesus. People who do come to know Jesus when we tell them about him, and it's a miracle harvest. 
30, 60, 100 times what was sown. And just have a look down to verse 26 again. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Speaking about Jesus seems really slow, and the results, well, they feel very uncertain. But, verse 26, Jesus says that is exactly how the kingdom of God grows. And even though it's slow, verse 29, it will result in a harvest. Then lastly, look down to verse 31 again. The kingdom of God, says Jesus, is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, yet when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Just like the mustard seed, telling people about Jesus looks tiny and weak and unimpressive. But it grows into something huge. Why prioritize speaking words about Jesus, even though it looks ineffective and weak? Well, in each of the parables, Jesus makes the same point. The message about him, as weak as it looks, is the means by which God grows his kingdom. And it will result in a harvest. Now let's pause for a moment. And uh, let me ask you what part of Mark 4 you need to be convinced of. What part of Mark 4 do you need to be convinced of? Just think for a moment about your fumbling effort to explain the gospel to someone in your office. Or your attempt to tell your flat, flatmate why you bother going to church every week or you're going out to house group again. Or reflect on your CU event where somebody gives their testimony through shaking knees and dry mouth. See, I don't need to be convinced that my attempts to tell people about Jesus are weak and unimpressive. I know that myself. What I need convincing of is that my fumbling efforts to explain the gospel to a friend are the means by which God, the creator God of the universe, builds his kingdom. Don't you? Do you need to be convinced of that? And I need even more convincing that it will result in an abundant harvest. Lots of people turning to the Lord Jesus. Well, we might not always see it, but Jesus says that it will And actually, whilst our own experience might make it hard to believe, when you look at Jesus' own life and ministry, that's exactly what it looked like. So he preached a message of repentance and belief. And what impact did that have within Jesus' lifetime? Well, it left him with a small clutch of followers in first century Palestine, most of whom abandoned him when he was arrested and crucified. It's not exactly world-changing stuff, is it? But that small handful of followers is now over a billion people around the world today. How's that for a harvest? Repentance and belief for the forgiveness of sins has always been an unimpressive message. It was when Jesus preached it, it will be when you do. And lots and lots of people reject it, they always have. 
but it is still how God grows his kingdom. That's the point. So what are we meant to do with all of that? Uh, Well, there are two main applications to us, I think. And again, you'll see those as the last two headings on your service sheet. Um, Firstly, speak up. Uh, So what Jesus describes in Mark 4 does describe his own preaching ministry. So when you read through Mark's gospel, this is just what it looked like. But he isn't just kind of predicting what things are going to look like in his own life. He's also preparing his followers for what will happen when they do the same thing. And so he tells them, verses 21 and 22, just have a look at that with me, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. What's he saying? Well, the point he's making is that you've got a message to tell people. Don't hide it under a basket. Don't stick it under the bed. Put it on a stand, says Jesus. Get it out there. Tell people about him. And what does that look like for us? Well, it'll look like taking one step forward in evangelism, most likely. We've all been hearing that on repeat for the past nine months or so, haven't we? Since we started Acts in January this year, now in 1 Corinthians. Now, taking one step forward will look a bit different for each one of us, depending on where we're starting from. But I thought it was worth having a quick think of one really concrete example that might resonate with at least some of us uh, this morning. So tomorrow morning, in your office, or your GP surgery, or the staff room, or the golf course, wherever you find yourself tomorrow morning, there's a pretty high likelihood that someone is going to ask you what you got up to at the weekend. Everyone seems compelled to ask that same question on a Monday, aren't they? It's like a nervous tick. What did you get up to at the weekend? And when they do you might be tempted to give a pretty detailed description of what you got up to on Saturday down to what you had for lunch and where you went for coffee and then a suspiciously vague response about having a quieter day on Sunday. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Just me? All right, leave me hanging. That's okay. But what if instead of giving a vague explanation of what you did on Sunday, you said something like this? Yesterday I went to church, actually, and I do that most Sundays because I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. I'd love to tell you more about him sometime. Would you be up for that? Now, that might feel terrifying to some of you. I don't doubt it does. But it might feel like a really realistic thing to do tomorrow morning for some of you. And the point of the second parable in Mark, in Mark 4 is that we won't really be able to do anything about how people respond to that kind of line of conversation. The sower sows the seed, he goes to bed, and the seed still grows. He doesn't even know how it grows, but it grows. And so you or I cannot make anyone believe the message of Jesus, no matter how persuasive you are, how persistent you are, no matter how well you engage in the culture in which they live, you cannot make anyone believe in the message of Jesus. But the wonderfully liberating thing of Mark 4 is that you're not really meant to. That is God's job. He'll make the seed grow. The point of Mark 4 is not to let people's responses put you off from opening your mouth in the first place. That's the first application, I think, to speak up. But there is another application, and we'll finish with this one this morning. And you get a sense of this one from something Jesus repeats throughout uh, the chapter. So just look down with me uh, quickly at verse 3. Just looking for one word, beginning of verse 3. 
Listen. Okay, right, scan down to verse 9. Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Down to verse 24. Pay attention to what you hear. And lastly, to verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke to the, word, the word to them as they were able to hear it. See the point that Jesus is making all the way through this chapter. Listen up. Listen up. Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, all of this talk about sowing seed and bringing in a harvest might feel pretty unnerving to you like you've walked into some kind of strange cult. You might have spent the past 20 or 25 minutes scanning the room for emergency exits as I've been speaking. Well, can I firstly say that we are delighted you came this morning. You're so, so welcome, and we'd love to have you back any, any time. And at the very least, I hope that you can see what I've been saying isn't just my idea. It isn't Chalmers Church strategy for growing or for a recruitment drive. It's Jesus who says all of this. And what I would ask you to be mindful of this morning is the fact that you do not hear the good news of Jesus in a vacuum. See, we like to think of ourselves as objective and rational people, don't we? We make decisions based on the facts and the facts alone. But we know from our own experience that it's very rarely the case that you make decisions based on the facts and facts alone. And Jesus, in Mark 4, 1 to 20, helps to expose that kind of thinking he says that becoming a Christian might actually make life harder for you. It might bring opposition from friends and family. It might make conversation at the Christmas dinner table pretty awkward. It might interfere with your interest in money and stuff and work and prestige. And you might never have realized it before, but those could well be reasons that you've dismissed Jesus. Well, can I just say that following Jesus is costly, but that he is not out to steal anything from you. He's not out to steal your fun. He's not out to steal your fulfillment. It's just the opposite. He came to welcome you into abundant, eternal life. And in fact, he was so committed to making that possible that he died a criminal's death on a cross to make it so. So can I please ask you not to brush Jesus off? At the very least, find out what it is that you'd be brushing off, what you'd be dismissing. Come and chat to me or Robin after the service. We'd love to do that with you. Take this Bible home and read it. Read through Mark's gospel on your own or ask one of us if we'd read it with you. We'd love to do that as well. But just don't brush it off and don't let external stuff crowd it out. Or maybe you're further down the track than that. Maybe you've been thinking about Jesus for some time. Well, if that is you, can I encourage you to accept that word, a word of repentance and belief? What does that look like? Well, it looks like praying to him, acknowledging your rejection of him, and asking for his forgiveness for that rejection. And it looks like trusting that because of that death on the cross and that resurrection, 
He is able to forgive and willing to forgive that rejection of him and to welcome you into his family. You can do that even today. I hope and pray very much that someone here just might do that. Let me close by reading those verses again. I think it's helpful for those to be the last word. So chapter four, verse three. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. It's my prayer for you this morning that you would have ears to hear. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the good news of the Lord Jesus. That he lived the life we should have lived. That he died the death we should have died, all to save us from being cut off from you as we so deserve. And instead to welcome us into your family. We ask this morning that you would impress upon all of us just how wonderful that good news really is. Help us to treasure it, to treasure you as our saviour, whether that's for the first time or just to treasure it afresh. And for those of us who have trusted in you, we ask that you would help us to tell other people, even though it might feel inefficient, even though it might feel slow, even though it might feel weak, the good news of the Lord Jesus is how you grow your kingdom and you will do so abundantly. Would you help us to be confident in that and so to go forth and tell? We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory and we do so in the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.